Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 26th, 2022, more than 50 years ago. It was a wonderful movie made, 1967 movie, The Graduate. Many of you will have seen it. If you haven't, you need to. It's a film about a university graduate student called Benjamin, who was, to borrow from the title, uh, from the, uh, the blurb of the film, he was a little worried about his future. He ended up having a infamous affair with a married woman, an older woman, which was part of the narrative. Uh, but perhaps the most memorable part of the film was an interaction between the young man, um, uh, who, of course, uh, uh, was Dustin Hoffman, um, and the husband of the woman he ended up having an affair with. The old man, he was a corporate executive, said to him, the graduate, suggesting what he might do in his future. He said, there's one word, and that word was plastic. Just want to say one word to you, just one word. Yes, sir, are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastic. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? The great future in plastics, of course, back in 1967 was speculative. It's rather like today talking about cryptocurrency or the metaverse, but that future has turned out in a word to be great, too great indeed. We did a show a couple of years ago with a young environmental activist, Hannah Tester, on what she called uh, the plastic crisis. It's a book about teenage activism fighting the plastic industry. And we're back to talking plastics today with an academic based at the University of Warwick in, in the UK. She's talking to us from Coventry. Um, and uh, she's the author of a new book, Plastic Unlimited, uh, How Corporations Are Fueling the Ecological Crisis and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Alice, I assume you've seen The Graduate. Yes, I have. <laughs> and was that, uh, was that corporate executive, the cook-holded uh, corporate executive, was he right? Was there a great future in plastics? Uh, sh sure. I mean, it, I think it was meant perhaps in an ironic way at, at the at the time. It's uh, mildly, I think. Alex, yeah. <laughs> but, but but yeah, I mean, it, it was it's interesting. Actually, one of the industry executives who I spoke with said, "Plus, there used to be a future in plastics, and now maybe not so much." Is what what he said. So yeah, there was, but in the in the larger time scale. Uh, I think that the time is is limited on on plastics as a future. Alice, would it be fair to say, as I suggested in the introduction, that back in the 1960s and the mid 60s, the promise of plastics was presented by futurists and investors and corporate executives like the way that techno uh, the cryptocurrency or, or 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 the metaverse or some other digital utopia was presented today in other words in a in a very uh, utopian promising way yeah i think it's fair to say that it it was definitely 
seen as a kind of a miracle and, and still that narrative exists today that plastics uh, for all its flaws is a, is a miracle somehow of, of chemistry that it can be made into any moldable object and have any property it's it's got these almost magical properties so yeah it's the and it seems to me and, and please correct correct me if i'm wrong it's the, it's the synthetic quality of plastics. I mean, by definition, plasticity is synthetic and vice versa. It's that that lends it its miraculous quality, the idea of turning something that doesn't have any f- physical similarity of plastic into something quite different. So there's a kind of, it's almost like a uh, an industrial form of, of alchemy, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and. Uh, many in the industry would actually even use those those terms. Uh, the the uh, CEO of Ineos, the petrochemical giant, which uh, Jim Ratcliffe wrote a book called The Alchemists, in, in which he talks about the history of that, the rise of that petrochemical giant as as being like a form of alchemy. If only it was right, though, Alice, right? I mean, you wouldn't need to have written your book. We wouldn't need to ha- be having shows like this. Uh, there is a, an alchemy. Uh, it, there is an, an an alchemic, I'm not sure if that's the right word, quality, if there is such a word as alchemic, but it is a form of alchemy, but a, a dark one, uh, because what is being created is, is the problem with plastics that it's indestructible. So both its quality and its its promise and its dark side are, are, are really the same thing. That's certainly one of the aspects is that it it yeah can can persist in the environment in our bodies and in ecosystems for thousands of years and that wasn't known uh, at the time it was developed uh, but the problem is so much bigger than that it's it's about how toxic it is at at every stage of the plastics uh, life cycle from production through to consumption and waste it's that it's. Ninety-nine percent of plastics are, are are coming from fossil fuels, so it's a very uh, greenhouse gas-intensive industry, and it's tremendously wasteful. Let's imagine the world in 1967, before plastics existed. If we went back then, back to when uh, Mike Nichols, the graduate, came out, how would the world look differently to us, ordinary people, when they go outside, when they live their lives? Yeah, I mean, if if what you're getting at is is that the, that the whole world wouldn't be quite so full of plastic, then that would be uh, right. I mean, already. Well, no, I, I mean, my question. <laughs> I, I don't have an answer, uh, Alice, but I, I'm curious. What did we do for in the kitchen, uh, in our cars, in our everyday lives? What was used instead of plastic? Today, everything we live in a in a, almost a, a ubiquitously, for better or worse, and. You argue, and I agree with you. For, for the most part, it's it's for the worse. We live in a ubiquitously plastic world. But what what did we used to have instead of plastic? Was it wood? Yeah, many of the products uh, that we would have in our house households would have been wood, glass, uh, paper. Uh, but that kind of level of mass consumption and I guess affluence, especially in global North countries, didn't exist on that level prior to the rise of plastics. So, in some ways, the the two 
came together at the same time. So uh, the the rise of the 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 ability for the average I don't know middle class household to have a car or a refrigerator, uh, uh, lots of you know carpets and, and all the kind of things associated with households. That that uh, ability rose at the same time as the rise of plastics itself. So while plastics weren't yet the dominant form uh, of consumer goods in the 1960s, they swiftly became and were very much promoted by the plastics industry from from the time of the Second World War as, as a as a way to find markets for the products uh, that that had uh, grown up during during that time. It's an interesting thesis. I wonder um, whether you're in the same camp as another British academic, Tim Jackson. He was on the show last year. There's an interesting new book out, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Do you see the growth of the plastics industry and the growth of this consumer capitalist economy in the last 50, 75 years as intimately bound up with one another? Uh, <clears throat> the, the short answer is, is yes, I, I do agree with uh, much of what uh, Tim, Tim Jackson has written in. I think it's a fantastic book. And the wider movement uh, around ideas about degrowth. Uh, so I, I, th I make the point throughout the book that the problem is is about uh, plastics growth and and this idea that it's seen to be kind of limitless and and exponential. Uh, where I might depart from some of the degrowth and and post growth theorists is is that I don't think it's it's about virtually every sector of the economy and and plastics is a particularly uh, problematic one, given given its so polluting, wasteful, uh, toxic, and and you can, it's very difficult to disentangle those elements. So I I think you need to have growth in in some uh, you know sectors such as renewables, maybe not on the same logic as as with conventional extractive economies. So uh, yeah, and there's also challenges. I think, in terms of the inequalities with regard to cl claiming that we should move towards a degrowth society when that would uh, impact uh, communities who are struggling with poverty and and uh, lack of jobs, for example, uh, in, in very different ways. We go back to that movie, uh, The Graduate, um, Alice, and that interaction. Uh, between the corporate executive and the young man who was just graduating from college. The other word he might have used, rather than plastic, he might have used the word tobacco, because that was also a time when the tobacco industry was in huge uh, growth mode. Everybody was smoking. Uh, and we have the wiki entry for the tobacco industry. There seems to me to be a lot of equivalence between the growth of the plastics industry and the growth of the tobacco industry. And you argue in the book, Plastic unlimited, uh, that, um, that the plastics industry and the tobacco industry, the corporate executives, the marketing people, the PR people, they borrow each other's scripts. They're, they're talking from the same hymn book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost, I've reflected on this before, that, that perhaps it almost sounds conspiratorial to talk about, you know, the big oil or the big tobacco or the big plastic as they're all, as if they're all the same uh, uh, kind of corporations. But in fact, they do uh, use the same kinds of tactics, particularly when it comes to denying 
the health problems that come with their products. So, so the plastics industry notoriously uh, first discovered uh, that vinyl chloride, one of their major uh, plastics products, was uh, contributing to uh, the deaths and, and illnesses of, of workers in their plants. And they conducted uh, extensive research on that, found those correlations, and hushed it up from the public, lied to government regulators, and actively uh, avoided and, and tried to quash any regulations that came their way with regard to that. And they've done that consistently, not so flagrantly, because they were caught doing it effectively in, in the 1960s and 70s. And, and yeah, that comes straight out of the tobacco industry's uh, denial of the harms from smoking when they knew uh, very well what those were. So it's about companies that have uh, products that they know are harmful to health, that they know pose a threat, uh, and they uh, actively seek to protect those markets uh, at the expense of public health. Who's most responsible for this, Alice? Um, should we blame the shareholders? Should we, game, should we blame governments? Should we, of course, blame the senior executives at these companies, uh, the chemical companies, maybe some of the... I know you, you focus on other companies who are sharing the blame, the Coca-Colas of the world who have grown rich off the chemical industry, um, Nestle. I mean, every major packaged goods company in the world today is dependent on plastic, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, in the book, I, I argue that the, the large compa companies uh, that get away with these activities and that do have monopolistic or near monopolistic control, especially if you go to the sort of pet, the producer side of the the, the those companies that are involved in plastics. So it's a very diverse uh, playing field of different kinds of corporations, and I and I and I'm quite clear in the book that it's not that I'm saying that there are individuals that are bad, or even that some corporations aren't trying to find uh, solutions. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, they are the ones who are uh, creating those uh, those products, trying to uh, take advantage of where there are opportunities to expand markets and consistently uh, overlooking the harms while uh, trying to find, uh, trying to cast themselves as, as being part of the solution. But I wouldn't say it's, it's just corporations, it's, it's governments that, that enable those, those corporations. It's the whole kind of growth mentality that, that, uh, or dominant growth paradigm that Tim Jackson refers to uh, that drives economies and means that they uh, are kind of, I guess, addicted to growth and, and uh, unwilling uh, to make the hard decisions about, uh, you know, limiting harmful uh, markets where they know they ought to. Uh, so, and I think it's, it's, it's easy to say that we're all responsible, just like with the climate crisis. Uh, but uh, I think some are more responsible than others. And th those powerful corporations and, and their funders, like the banks and financial institutions and states and insurance companies, uh, are those who need to be held most to account. It's funny, we used to talk about Ronald Reagan as the Teflon president, the guy to whom no scandal would stick. Teflon, of course. <laughs> 
is one of the the most yeah. successful products within uh, the plastics industry. And it seems like companies like, and I, I don't want to pick on Nestle's, Nestle because they're probably no worse or better than Coca-Cola or Dow Chemical or ExxonMobil. But I was just browsing around before this interview and I found on the uh, the the Nestle um, website uh, an obsession with sustainability, and the, the Nestle sub marketers are uh, describing themselves as good food, good life. Should we be wary of the sustainability initiatives at companies like Nestle? They're trying to turn themselves into corporate Teflons, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, one of the prime motivations of writing this book was looking at corporate sustainability discourses as well as practices. Sustainability is one, the circular economy is another. And seeing how that can sometimes serve to actually legitimate continued uh, plastics. Do you think that the marketing people at companies like Nestle, do you think they know what they're doing? in terms of this cult of sustainability and other supposedly uh, public initiatives, while at the same time, the core of their company or many others are actually ruining the world, creating. And, and one of the, the nice things about your book is, is you show how catastrophic the, uh, the, 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 the chemical industry has been. You, you write about Cancer Alley in, in Louisiana and then Chemical Valley in Ontario, where you're from. The, the impact of this, not just in a sort of broad environmental way, but specifically is catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they, they are. I, I mean, one of the things that was most surprising in, in some of my research on uh, corporations is the extent to which they actually are aware of, of all, all of these issues or of environmental injustice in local communities and of uh, the damage of their products, right down to being able to provide charts of the, tracing the toxicity throughout history of all the products that have been banned, uh, knowing the regulations inside out, uh, so I think that on a on an aggregate level, uh, they are aware. But I think that some, you know, individuals working in large organizations don't necessarily have the full picture. And I have heard some very passionate uh, people working in sustainability, uh, you know, portfolios, uh, including at Nestle, actually, uh, all about the latest, you know, plastic bottle that they can engineer to biodegrade and not really thinking critically about the fact that we're producing, you know, half a trillion plastic bottles per year uh, uh, in, in the world. Most of that's not recycled and that's up from like virtually none in, in the 1960s. So not seeing that bigger picture and focusing in on these sort of quick win solutions that make them feel good. But that's not unlike you know, your average person in some respects is just in a, on a different level. All right. Your book, um, Alice, has the subtitle, uh, How Corporations Are Fueling the Ecological Crisis and What We Can Do About It. This What We Can Do About It appears in practically every nonfiction book I deal with now and sometimes a little wary. So let's, let's focus on that. 
Uh, in my interview with Hannah Tester, in her book, she quotes the great Arctic explorer Robert Swan, who, who, who famously said, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. And uh, Hannah, as a teenage activist, focuses in terms of saving the world on what she calls the, the five R's when, it deal, when, when we're confronting the plastics crisis. Refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. Do you agree with those five R's? Are, are there others or should we focus on a particular R in terms of dealing with this crisis? I, I think those are great R's, especially reduce <laughs> and refuse. Uh, yeah, admittedly, I mean, I agree. The what can we do? It is almost a about it is almost a cliche. When you it have comes to put to it in, Alice. I know I've written books myself. <laughs> Editors always want that at the end. It's always the final chapter in these books, and they're all, often the least convincing. Yeah, I mean, I found it the most difficult to write, uh, but it was also the most sort of transformative to write because it pushed me into a space which many sociologists are not very good at being in, which is sociologists are quite good at criticizing, same with environmentalists. <laughs> um, but but yeah, what can you do about it given the enormity of a systemic analysis instead of an individual behavior kind of analysis? And so, yeah, I think there are things that uh, you can, can do uh, on an individual level and on a more systematic level uh, and yeah part of it's about <laughs> I don't know keeping up the hope and and continuing the pressure uh, the UN uh, you know treaty on pl to end plastic waste which is now uh, being agreed or, or you know discussed over the next two years will be a point of uh, considerable debate and controversy but it it's a chance uh, to put on the table. But, but, but Alice, sorry to jump yeah. in here. I have to, yeah. I have to get into trouble for interruption. But um, <laughs> isn't the UN the place where good ideas go to die? Nothing ever gets done in the UN, especially these days. Sure. I mean, yeah, you can be cynical about these things. And well, I'm not being cynical. I, I would be, be as well. <laughs> um, but I, it's I mean, a starting point. I mean, would you rather... Rather than dumping everything on the UN when nothing ever gets done, shouldn't we be... Going back, for example, to Hannah Tester's five R's, for example, refusing to use plastic straws, just beginning in terms of our own lifestyle, not relying on the UN to come up with some global solution, which is anything that's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I do think there's a lot in that, but it's so much bigger than, than plastic straws and, and recycling. Uh, for one, it's I mean, it's entire systems of delivery. It's it's like everything that's in your supermarket. It's Amazon. It's it's logistics. It's it's in the airplane. It's in the computer. We're talking over. Uh, we're talking about societal dependence on, uh, you know, con the constituents of our material world that is if you look at any level into it, it's, you could say that it's almost like 90% of the, the, the manufactured world. And so uh, having some levels of individual refusal and activism is not going to get you very far. And I think that was part of the reason I was motivated to write this book was, was about seeing this groundswell of activism, this groundswell of pushing for new regulations, loads of bans coming in, the momentum behind the uh, UN Plastics Treaty, sure. But 
at the end of the day, the exponential curves of predictions for plastics growth are meant to continue, uh, you know, with, with the amount of plastic produced and wasted uh, tripling in the next 20 years from what we're already at and how that was already. I mean, we already got the, <laughs> these images of the world of nature being destroyed by plastic seals wearing necklaces of plastic. So you're saying it's going to get significantly worse. We had uh, we've done a lot of shows on the environmental crisis. We had Eugene Linden, a very prominent American environmentalist on the show a few months ago talking about how the path to a livable future is becoming narrower and narrower. How urgent is this crisis? At what point do we get to a moment of no return, Alice, where plastic has quite literally destroyed the world? Well, there's a lot of talk in, in climate circles and ecological crisis circles of tipping points. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's difficult to say when that when or you're the expert i mean be. you know as much <laughs> as anyone what, what would you suggest five years 10 years 20 years when and i'm talking to you from silicon valley when we talk about 20 years it really means that we have no idea of the future can we talk concretely yeah. in terms of five or 10 year horizons i i mean i i can't i'm not a, a modeler or a predictor but but certainly there are you know scientists who have said that this is an underappreciated uh, uh, crisis uh, that link that is related to overconsumption. It's one that we really don't want to address globally. The problem is that it intersects with climate crisis. It intersects with biodiversity loss and deforestation, and and all the other crises. So yeah, I think I think it's. I mean, the the question is, are we going to fall off a cliff in 2050? Uh, where everything comes together at a specific moment, like it's yeah, you can't really say that. I think it'll be, uh, uh, yeah, gradual and very very unequal uh, journey. Already, if you like, similar to the climate crisis, if you look at uh, some of the cities that are barraged with uh, toxic plastic waste that's unmanaged and causing tremendous toxic exposures uh, in, you know, cities in South Asia, like Dhaka and, and Bangladesh, uh, you would say we're already on the front lines of, of that plastic waste emergency. It's just that it hasn't percolated evenly around the globe, just like the, the climate crisis. And I think it will reach a point where uh, it's infecting all parts of, <laughs> or most parts of the world. Uh, at, but I think at the point in which it be, reaches that tipping point, or it reaches that like uh, drowning in plastic waste kind of image, which is very apocalyptic, then it would be, uh, yeah, kind of a point of no return or too late. So obviously we there is urgency because we need to uh, think about how to limit that production now. We talked about the tobacco industry. It's obviously another industry with expertise in the dark arts of telling lies publicly, but it seems as if the, the tobacco industry has taken a number of hits People still smoke, but less and less, especially in the advanced industrial world. Is there hope in the way in which the lies of the tobacco industry have been exposed by activists and doctors? Well, people still smoke. <laughs> but, um... but these companies, uh, Philip Morris, for example, have changed their branding. They don't even acknowledge being manufacturers of, of tobacco products anymore. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting with plastics because uh, it it has sort of somehow managed to escape uh, being 
an out an out and out kind of problematic substance because there's so much dependence because it is essential in many people's lives. Let's not forget, you know, the the fact that it was in all these medical um, um, devices, products, equipment uh, through the pandemic, uh, and that it is and has been uh, used to to save lives. It's in uh, you know green technologies. So that kind of idea that plastic can somehow you can bracket out the things that are unsustainable and toxic and and, and dirty and and deceitful about the harms by saying oh well it's actually beneficial in all these kinds of ways so we need to have it and then that avoids the question of well how much of it do we really need to have and uh, what are we going to do about uh, this exponential growth curve, which shows no signs of abating despite all these uh, legislative moves. So I, I think until uh, there's widespread uh, societal recognition ac across many governments uh, on the same level of saying we need to get off fossil fuels, at least there's a recognition discursively that that's a, a trajectory. There's no trajectory that says we need to get off plastics, not not on a uh, and and also that's partly because plastics are fossil fuels. So that's a switch that I think still needs to happen. We talked a little bit about Tim Jackson, his vision of life after capitalism. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had George Monbiat, another UK-based, very prominent environmentalist. He just won the Orwell Prize for Journalism, talking about his new, fil uh, his new book, uh, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. It's again a not just a political, but a, a philosophical revolution. Do you think we need the same thing, a Monbiat-style regenesis re revolution when it comes to plastics too? I assume it's all part of the same movement, theoretically. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I mean, the underlying commonality with uh, John George Monbiot's book is, is about chemicals, which is, you know the 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 reliance on on you know industrial scale chemicals uh, throughout the the world. I mean, I haven't finished the book yet, but but it, it's it uh, it's yeah. I, I love that, that his work, and I think it's yeah sim a similar kind of message. Could we have um, just as in Regenesis, we have a, a kind of artisanal kind of food. Could we have an artisanal kind of plastic? that might be better for the world? Or do we simply have to move beyond it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I, I, a lot of people come to me with ideas about sustainable plastics, which is itself quite a, a controversial and, and wide ranging set of ideas. I, I think there's something to, to the idea of scale. And so whenever someone gleefully says, oh, look, I've got paper instead or, or aluminum, aluminum instead of, of, of plastic on the, on the packaging. If it's still produced with however many billion of, of these packages per year that are made single use, then it's still um, posing problems for the environment. So I think there is, a, there is obviously a role to, for plastics. I think it is important to think about how to make more sustainable plastics uh, but uh, attending to the idea that we just can't have these kinds of volumes, especially, um, yeah, the idea that we might need to give up or think differently of, about that, those levels of, of consumption. 
Well, that's what we can do. Uh, Alice, congratulations on your new book, Plastic Unlimited. Um, how corporations are fueling the, and, and, and that word is used, I think, with a degree of irony, fueling the ecological crisis and what we can do about it. Very important issue, very important book. Congratulations on the book, Alice. Uh, uh, what else are you reading, maybe to cheer you up a little bit? Yeah, precisely. So I've just finished reading this this book by Ruth Ozaki uh, called The Book of Form and Ep Emptiness. It's a novel uh, thinking through, yeah, the, the overwhelming aspects of climate crisis and, and news that's really disturbing and through grief and loss uh, of, a, of a small family, but also thinking about ways of uh, reconnecting through understanding actually interestingly this idea of things or objects that, that speak their histories, including manufactured things or made things as well as natural things. Really inspiring, hopeful book. And Why Rebel by Jay Griffiths, another UK environmental writer who's an, uh, a lovely, very unusual uh, kind of environmental writer, uh, somehow straddling poetry uh, with nonfiction, a real love of life and a real love of nature, yet a kind of anger and such beautiful essays, very inspiring, very um, nourishing for thinking about uh, alternatives and, and how to wrestle with this, these challenging times.